you have a copy of God's Word, I'd encourage you to turn to Revelation chapter 5. Revelation chapter 5. This Advent season, we've been looking at uh, the music of Christmas. If you've been with us, this sort of playlist that attends the, the Christmas season, and we looked at Mary's song and Zachariah's song, uh, Simeon's song, Rachel's sad song, the angel's song. And what we've seen in all these songs really gave expression to what was going on in the hearts of those who sang them. And that's the power of music. It tends to, to capture things and emotions that words really fail to uh, capture often. So they give expression to our hearts. Uh, if you were with us at the very beginning, we, we talked about the debate of how early it's too early to listen to Christmas music. And if you talk to some people, they say, well, you can't listen to Christmas music till after Thanksgiving. And others, you can't listen to Christmas music until after Halloween. It seems to be getting earlier and earlier. Well, there's probably an equally important debate that happens on the other end. And that is, how long can we listen to Christmas music after Christmas? You find some people that will say, the minute Christmas is over, we are done with Christmas music. We flip the switch and are moving on to something else. And so you might be wondering this morning why we're concluding our sermon series after Christmas with the look of another song of Advent. And it might be even more surprising that that other song of Advent comes from the book of Revelation. But when you think about it, it really does make a lot of sense. Because that word Advent means coming. It means coming. And each year when we start the Advent season, uh, we think about all those believers in Jesus Christ that waited for thousands upon thousands of years for the arrival of the Savior. All that anticipation, all that waiting for the Savior to come. And then we celebrate with them that the Savior came in the form of a baby uh, born to Mary and Joseph. But each year what we do for Advent is we also look forward we look forward to another coming, and that is the second coming of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And we know that that second coming will bring an end to all things, the consummation of God's great plan of redemption. And so for in many ways, if you're a believer that is living in this time, you're living in between two Advents. The first advent, Christ's first coming, and the second advent, his second coming. It's like we're, we're sitting in the waiting room waiting for God's final coming. And that's when the book of Revelation enters the stage. Because the book of Revelation gives us that thing that our hearts are most longing for, a window into that second advent that we all are waiting for. And so we turn to the book of Revelation. We look at the songs of Revelation this morning. And anytime you look at the book of Revelation, you have to be willing to use your imagination. So use that faithful imagination. Imagine these words, even as I read them from Revelation chapter 5, reading the whole of the chapter, verses 1 to 14. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. 
And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. One of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And behold, and between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he'd taken the scroll, the four living creatures and 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom of priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. This is God's word. Father, thank you so much for the opportunity to gather together on this uh, first day of 2023. Father, I pray that as we open this new year, we would find you to be faithful in every area of our lives, Lord. And even as Wade spoke about the reflection that often comes with a new year, may we reflect on the power of the gospel and the beauty of this scene that we just read. May it capture our emotions and our minds and our thoughts and everything about us just as it did the Apostle Paul or the Apostle John, and may we be shaped and changed as a result of it. We pray all this in Christ's name, amen. I think one thing that's pretty clear about our passage is that worship is the central business of heaven, and therefore if worship is the central business of heaven, it ought to be the business of God's people in the here and in the now. That's what I want us to see uh, from our passage this morning. But I think if you were paying attention at all to the passage, you'll see that, that worship is the, the central business of heaven. It's the central business of God's presence. That's what our passage gives us a window into. And again, as we reflect on this passage, we have to use our imaginations. We have to imagine what this scene would have been like and, and engage our faith as we imagine it. We know from the book of Revelation that the Apostle John is exiled in the wilderness on the island of Patmos. And it was there that John is caught up in a vision and he gets to see uh, these visions of heaven and the end of all things. If you've ever read the book of Revelation, it's a tricky book to read. 
Um, But when you get to Revelation 4 and Revelation 5, which we just read, we get to see the worship or the, the central activity of what is happening in heaven. John's ushered into God's presence and his senses are engaged in ways they've never been before. I often think of, of Dorothy leaving black and white, uh, drab and dull Kansas and being ushered into the, the technicolor experience of Oz and how uh, amazing and awe-inspiring that must have been from her in that old movie. And that's exactly what's happening to John here as he's ushered, ushered into the presence of God in heaven. If you read chapter four, the worship of heaven, the topic of that worship is, is God's creative power, his, his majesty and his holiness. But then when you come to to chapter 5, which we just read, the worship seems to carry a different topic. It seems to to emphasize God's work of redemption, his redeeming of a people for himself. We're introduced to a scroll, and and many people have wondered, what is this this scroll that John sees? Well, we know there's, there's text written on both the front and on the back of this scroll, and we're told it is sealed seven times. And anytime you see the number seven uh, in the book of Revelation, really in all the scriptures, you have to think of the concept of perfection and completion. And so this is the perfect scroll, the, the, the scroll that, that holds all things. But also in Roman law, whenever there was something that was very secret, like a secret document, it had to be sealed by seven different witnesses. And so those reading this first revelation of John are thinking of, of, of secret texts of this perfection and this completion that comes from this scroll. And so most people believe that the scroll is a, a picture of destiny itself, of history from start to finish, it, more like God's unfolding plan of history. And of course, in the context of, of this section of Revelation, It really is the enfolding of the history of God in time and in space, and in particular, the climax of that history in the redemption of God's people, the redeeming of their souls. But it also includes the end and how the end's going to happen and how God's going to bring a consummation to this plan of redemption, which sort of at the end of the day is secretive. We don't know when God's going to come again. We don't know when he's going to bring that final consummation and completion to history. At one point in the story, someone declares, who is worthy to open the scroll? Who is worthy to break these seals? And then you imagine there's this sort of cosmic silence after that question is declared because no one is found to be worthy. And so John's not afraid to share what that did to him. He begins to weep uncontrollably. He's overwhelmed by emotion because no one is able to open the scroll because he's overwhelmed by the majesty of this moment, but also by the sadness of his own inadequacy and the inadequacy of those that are around him. Really, he's feeling that he's inadequate to open the scroll. Everybody else in God's created order is inadequate to open the scroll. And he feels a certain hopelessness about that moment as well. So one of the elders comes by to John and begins to console him. 
And the elder tells him that the lion of the tribe of Judah, he is the one who is worthy to open this scroll. And then if you're paying attention, becomes the twist or the paradox or the, the surprise of this passage. John had to expect, after the elder comes and consoles him, he had to expect that all of a sudden a great lion is going to emerge on the scene and powerfully open this scroll. But instead, he turns and he sees that it's a lamb, but not just any lamb, a lamb who had been slaughtered. That lamb had seven horns, it had seven eyes, which convey all sorts of wisdom and authority, but at the center of this song, at the center of this image, at the center of this scene of heavenly worship is a lamb. How surprising, how paradoxical, but what we know is that lamb is Jesus Christ himself, the lamb of God who was slaughtered for our salvation through his sacrifice we are saved and we are redeemed. So don't miss that the, the central theme or the central um, concept of this worship on the heavenly scene is Jesus Christ and his work of redemption. It is the central theme of this Advent song. After this, the whole heavens begins to erupt. And I've just try to imagine this multiple times this week, must, what this must have felt like and been like. As all of heaven erupts, it tells us that the four living creatures began to sing. The elders began to sing. In verse 11, it tells us that thousands upon thousands or myriads upon myriads. Have you ever heard that word myriad before? It's like an indefinite large number that is beyond our ability to count. And so thousands upon thousands and myriads upon myriads of people begin to sing and the crowd is diverse. It, it is all tribes, all languages, all tongues. They're all singing together. And so I can only imagine how loud this must have been. I've been to a couple of rock concerts that were really loud in my day. I can't imagine how loud this moment must have been because later on they're joined by all living creatures in the heavens and in the earth. Just imagine what this scene would have looked like. Robert Mounts wrote that nowhere else in the literature of worship will one find such a scene of unrestrained praise and adoration. One of the greatest scenes of universal adoration anywhere recorded. What I think is also really surprising about this is not just the reversal of this lion and land theme, but what's also surprising about this is they are, it tells us they are singing a new song. It's like they're singing a song that they wrote on the spot. This isn't just some tired old hymn that should go away. This isn't one of the sort of modern worship songs that tend to repeat the same thing 10 or 12 or 15 times. This is a spontaneous song. It is a natural overflow of the emotions of that very moment. And see, that's where I think sometimes we get the picture of heaven a little bit wrong. 
We often think, I remember as a kid, thinking that heaven is this sort of 24-hour church service, and that doesn't sound very exciting to me. I remember thinking that as a kid and even at times as an adult. We sometimes expect heaven to be this 24-hour church service that feels a little dull and perhaps monotonous. We're going to have to sing this same song over and over and over again for all of eternity. But instead, what I think this tells us is that we're going to spend eternity exploring the depths of God's greatness and never actually reaching its end. C.S. Lewis talked about heaven being further in and further up. And what I meant, what I think he meant by that was that every day will be filled with new songs which spring from a new amazement at who God is and what he has done. I can remember a couple years ago, I read uh, an article about a band who was getting ready to release uh, a new album, and they had spent three years working on the album and fine-tuning it and working on it in the studio. They'd even performed some of the songs that were on the road. And so a week comes right before they're about to release their album, and they, they sort of looked at one another and said, we're really bored with this music now. We're really sick of it, and there's no passion here. And so what they decided to do is they scrapped this entire album that they had been working on for three years. And that sounds great and wonderful, but they owed a new album to the record company in seven days. And so what they did is they locked themselves in a room, and in seven days they wrote a full album of songs. They wrote, they produced, they performed, they recorded, and at the end of the day it was one of the best albums they had ever written. Why? because it was spontaneous, it was joyful, it was passionate for them. Friends, I think that's going to be the joy of heaven. We're going to write new songs every day because we are overcome by the spontaneity and the adventure of it all. It will be anything but dull. See, worship is the business of heaven. It's going to be the business of God's people for all of eternity, and it will be anything but dull. But I think this also has implications for us. By implication, if worship is indeed the business of heaven, then by implication that means it should be the central business of God's people now as well. It should be the central business of God's people. If you hang out in our denomination uh, long enough, you know that we have a confession, and uh, that summarizes all the beliefs that we have in our denomination, and it starts out with this question. What is the the chief end of man? Or what is the the chief purpose of man? What is, why are we here? Why do we exist? And the answer is, we exist to glorify, to worship God, and to enjoy him forever. Now, I think there's been some helpful distinctions about what this means over the years. Um, And some of the helpful distinctions have to do with what we mean by worship. And I think over the years, we've, we've had to dispel this notion that worshiping God isn't just about going to church on Sunday. It's much more than all of that. Of course, we are called to worship God um, in everything that we do. Worship isn't just localized to one hour on Sunday morning. And I think that correction is, for, for a long time, people felt like, well, if I go to, I, the reason I'm a Christian is because I go to church 
on Sunday morning. As long as I go to church on Sunday morning, then I am a Christian and I should be good. And so the correction is, no, Christianity, this faith is is way more than what happens on a Sunday morning. It's all of life. And worship of God is all of life. We ought to worship God in our work and in our play and in our relationships. It involves everything. So I think that's a, a helpful correction that's come through Christianity over the past couple decades. But now I fear sometimes we've swung in the opposite extreme when it comes to worship, maybe an overcorrection, if you will. Now we tend to think of worship as something that's purely subjective, purely individualized. It's about our personal relationship with God and really nothing else. And so because this is the way Christianity is today, I run into very few people anymore that think they're Christians just because they go to church on Sunday. Very few people think that anymore. But I do run into a lot of people who claim to be Christians but have no room for the church and for the work of the church and the worship of the church. They want to be purely subjective to define their own spirituality for themselves. Now, in Hebrews, it tells us to not forsake the gathering together of believers for worship. And so what that means is this. Attending corporate worship does not make you a Christian. Just like if I attend a Ravens game, it certainly doesn't make me a raven, right? Attending a worship service doesn't make you a Christian. But communal and corporate worship is a central part of what it means to be a Christian. Now, I get it. Sometimes church can be hard. It can be difficult and all sorts of things. It would be a heck of a lot easier if church looked like the scene that we just read about in heaven that engages all our emotions and all of our senses. It would be a lot easier. And even the best of worship here on this earth can never compare to the songs of heaven and what we read about in the book of Revelation. But just because it is far from perfect... Just because it is far from perfect doesn't mean it isn't necessary. Now, why is that? Well, worship, corporate worship, is incredibly powerful. Why? Because of what we see in the book of Revelation. Because it takes our eyes off of ourselves and it centers them on Jesus, who is the true object of our worship. See, left to ourselves, we tend to be consumed by our own concerns and our own anxieties, but what corporate worship does is it lifts our gaze and it casts it upon Jesus, just like the song of heaven that we read about here in Revelation. Eugene Peterson wrote this, and it's a long quote, but it's a beautiful one. He said this, worship is a meeting at the center so that our lives are centered in God and not lived eccentrically. We worship so that we live in response to and from this center, which is the living God. Failure to worship consigns us to a life of spasms and jerks at the mercy of every advertisement, every seduction, every siren. Without worship, we, lived, we live manipulated and manipulating lives. We move in either frightened panic or deluded lethargy as we are in turn alarmed by specters and soothed by placebos. 
If there is no center, then there is no circumference. People who do not worship are swept into a vast and relentless epidemic in the world with no steady direction and no sustaining purpose. I know all this probably sounds a little self-seeking and maybe even um, a little tired. Here's a, a pastor standing up on Sunday telling us that we should come to church and we should worship. This is just what we expect, more guilt and more shame from the church, just as we've always heard. But I think Peterson's point is bigger and well taken. God gives us this gift of worship to center our lives on Jesus in the gospel. It's much bigger than music styles. It's much bigger than preaching styles and budgets and practices and liturgy. It's about this gift we are given that calls us to center our lives on Jesus and the gospel. It is the compass that God gives us to orient our lives, the primary means by which God gives us to shape our faith and impact the world around us as well. It might not be flashy or slick. It certainly isn't convenient and easy. In fact, the person next to you might be singing out of tune. They might even smell a little bit. But worship is God's means to transform you and to transform the world. If our worship is centered on Jesus and his work of redemption, which really is in unison with the song of heaven that we just read about, if our worship even just has a fraction of that character, then God will use it to transform us and to transform the world around us. Evelyn Underhill was an English writer who was born in 1875, and she died uh, really just before World War II. She was a pro prolific writer, and her theme was to write about spiritual things for ordinary people, and I love that. So what she did is she took sort of nature images, and she applied that to spiritual things. And uh, one of the things that she spoke about was um, worship, and she compared it to a seashore. Let me read you what she wrote. Many a congregation, when it assembles in church, must look to the angels like a muddy, puddly shore at low tide, littered with every kind of rubbish and odds and ends, a distressing sort of spectacle. And then the tide of worship comes in, and it's all gone. The dead sea urchins, the jellyfish, the paper and the empty cans and the nameless bits of rubbish the cleansing sea flows over the whole lot. And so we are released from a narrow, selfish outlook on the universe by a common act of worship. Friends, this is the gift of worship. It cleans, it orients, it restores, it recenters. Re it is God's gift to us who are waiting for that second advent. And so if worship is the business of heaven that we will enjoy for all eternity, then by implication, worship is the business of God's people now as people who are waiting for God's final coming. Let's pray.